A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Julia Chatley in New York. It is great to be with you. And the European Central Bank will finally hike interest rates in an attempt to rein in soaring inflation, but not until July. The ECB plans to raise rates by 25 basis points at next month's meeting, so that's a quarter of a percentage point. It also announced significant cuts to its growth forecast stemming from the war in Ukraine. Anna Stewart has all the details. Anna, great to be with you. Let's try and avoid basis points to uh, avoid people's <laughs> eyes glazing over when they listen to us. Um, <laughs> nice start there. Investors were pricing three quarter of a percent percentage mm. point rate hikes by September. Was that confirmed? Because that's a lot of hikes over a short space of time. You know what? It's possible it mm. wasn't confirmed. Essentially, what we're seeing here is almost a promise that there will be a rate hike of uh, a quarter of a percentage point. See, avoiding basis points there for you, Julia, uh, in July. And then potentially for September, we could see something bigger. And this is very much what analysts and investors were looking for. What's the pace and how big? And I thought the comment from the press release actually was really interesting. It says... If the medium-term inflation outlook persists or deteriorates, a larger increment will be appropriate at the September meeting. I think that's almost the furthest sort of forward guidance I think we've ever had from the ECB. And actually going into this meeting, wasn't it interesting? We had such a hawkish tone from Christine Lagarde between the two meetings, whether it was in interviews or in blogs. So coming into this, I think people were expecting a much more hawkish move and possibly this didn't deliver as hawkish a move as some were expecting. If the war were to escalate, economic sentiment could worsen, supply-side constraints could increase, and energy and food costs could remain persistently higher than expected. Well, Julia, we went a little early. We went a little early to that soundbite, but you can hear the issue at the heart of this, which is Christine Lagarde essentially saying so much rests on the war in Ukraine, and that is why the outlook is uncertain, and they're not going to promise anything really until they see more data coming out in the months ahead. Julia, yeah, it's so important to your point. The challenges of forecasting in this kind of environment, whether it's the kind of growth slowdown that we're seeing, the inflationary price pressures across the board, also how the market reacts to this, because, of course, they've Mm. been trying to keep interest rates, bond yields down, which obviously impacts everything that credit cards, mortgage rates are priced on around Europe. If those spike significantly higher than a lot of the work, the tightening work's being done for them. And what are they forecasting? Can you give us any kind of sense? Well, we've certainly seen some big moves in terms of European bond yields just today. Going into the meeting, I spoke to Deutsche Bank, uh, the chief economist there, saying that they feel like the ECB has essentially uh, underestimated inflation and was continuing to do so going into this. So it's really interesting to see what their inflation forecasts are. Um, Of course, inflation hit over... 8% in May, which is an all-time record, I think, or at least for many years. Now, the new staff projections are for annual inflation at 6.8% this year. So uh, we're off the high that we've already seen, potentially uh, declining to 3.5% next year, 2.1% in 2024. So just above uh, their sort of baseline, if you like, in 2024. GDP also really interesting. So some significant uh, downgrades in terms of their projections for GDP uh, for 2022, 2.8% 2.8% for 2023, 2.1%. Uh, and they have also revised up for 2024. What I find most interesting about this is that actually being still, despite a significant uh, downgrade in terms of this year and next year, they're still being really optimistic compared to the likes of the OECD. Julia? Good spot. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for uh, the context there and uh, managing over a few technical glitches, <laughs> professional and otherwise.
Thank you. To Ukraine now, President Zelensky warns the fate of the entire Donbass region is being decided in Severodonetsk. We defend our positions, inflict significant losses on the enemy. This is a very fierce battle, very difficult, probably one of the most difficult throughout this war. I'm grateful to everyone who defends this direction. This, as local officials say, Russia now controls most, quote, of the city. Sama Abdelaziz joins us now. Some poignant words, I think, there once again from President Zelensky and underscores the point of that the weaponry, the longer range weaponry that they've been asking for now for, for many weeks and months. Sama, how bad is the situation? If you're reading the situation on the ground and you hear what President Zelensky is saying, which is that the fate of Donbass lies in Severodonetsk, then the fate of Donbass simply does not look promising for Ukraine. We know, according to local Ukrainian officials, that Ukrainian troops have pulled back, withdrawn strategically to fortified positions. They are outmanned. They are outgunned. They say that they have a catastrophic shortage of artillery uh, barrages. They have been for weeks now been pounded by a superior Russian artillery. Uh, look, it's hard to read what uh, Ukrainian officials are saying and not assume that it is almost inevitable that Severodonetsk falls. And this is important, Julie. I want to just pull up that map uh, of the front lines. You can take a look at why this one city matters, why these grueling battles are taking place. And that's because it's one of the last strongholds in the Luhansk region. If Severodonetsk falls, essentially Luhansk falls to Russian troops and the Donbass region then becomes one step closer to being fully under Russian control. And last night, there seems to have been an uptick in uh, the Russian offensive on this area. Ukrainian officials are predicting that Russian troops want to have a win by this weekend because Sunday is Russia Day. That's a national holiday. They're Independence Day. President Putin might want to make a point of taking Severodonetsk by that point. So, I mean, it matters for many other reasons, too. If we can pull that map up again, it, it ties to the port access, the water access that's so critical for this part of the Ukraine country in, in particular. And again, a warning from the UN Secretary General echoing what the World Food Programme is saying now, that the risk that millions more people are pushed to near starvation as a result of being unable to get the significant amounts of grain out of Ukraine that the rest of the world needs. Absolutely, Julia. And this is the fear. This is the domino effect. This is the possibility that the United Nations, that the Western world is warning of, that hundreds of millions of people could be left starving, could be left destitute, that this could trigger larger conflicts across the Middle East and Africa if there is food insecurity. Right now, there is 20 million tons of grain trapped inside Ukraine. Ukrainian officials cannot export it. I'm going to pull up that map again. I'm sorry, but it is the easiest way to explain this. If you look at that coastline along the Black Sea, along the Sea of Azov, that's what Russian forces have been taking in this more than 100-day conflict. They have been taking control of those areas. You still have Odessa, of course, which is under full Ukrainian control, but Moscow is not allowing ships with grain on them to leave the port of Odessa to go and export that grain. There was talks in Ankara yesterday between uh, Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister, of course, of Russia, and his counterparts. No solution has been found. This is a difficult, so, uh, a difficult a diplomatic effort 
effort here because uh, Ukraine says that Russia is essentially holding this grain hostage, that it is using food as a weapon. The EU chief agrees. She says it's part of the arsenal of terror for Russia to hold on to this grain, to not allow these supplies to pass through these ports. There's been various solutions put into place from third parties, uh, third countries rather, trying to guarantee the security of Ukrainian ships. No agreement on that. And these are the 20 million tons of grains right now that are trapped. This is the beginning of the season. There is more and more. There is an expiration date on this, of course. This is highly concerning for the diplomatic world. This is highly concerning for the Middle East and Africa that rely on the breadbasket here in Ukraine. And there's no solution in sight, Julia. No, and we're going to speak to the Deputy Minister of uh, Agricultural Policy for Ukraine later on in the show, so hopefully get some context on what may or may not be able to be done. Summer, great to have you with us. Thank you. Okay, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. The special U.S. House Committee investigating the January 6th storming of the U.S. Capitol will begin to lay out its case on primetime TV later today. The panel aims to connect the dots between former U.S. President Donald Trump's attempt to overturn the 2020 election and the violence at the Capitol building. And also on Capitol Hill, the Democratic majority in the U.S. House of Representatives voted for a sweeping gun control package on Wednesday. On this vote, the yeas are 223, the nays are 204. The bill is passed. The measure, though, not expected to pass the Senate due to opposition by Republicans. Meanwhile, on a late-night TV show, President Joe Biden answered questions about what he alone can do on gun reform. Can't you issue an executive order? Trump passed those out like Halloween candy, yes, sir. I think. It, well, I isn't that something that could happen? Well, I, I have issued executive orders within the power of the presidency to be able to deal with these everything having to do with guns, gun ownership, whether or not you have to have a waiting, all, all the things that were within my power. But what I don't want to do, and I'm not being facetious, I don't want to emulate Trump's abuse of the Constitution and the constitutional authority. Immigration along the southern U.S. border will top the agenda at the summit of the Americas in Los Angeles. President Biden launched the event on Wednesday. Mexico and three Central American countries are boycotting the summit because Venezuela, Nicaragua and Cuba were not invited by the United States, citing their human rights records. And getting into the swing of things, golfers like Phil Mickelson and Dustin Johnson began teeing off at the first ever live golf event outside London. The winner of the controversial Saudi-backed series will take home a whopping $4 million prize. And Alex Thomas is at the Centurion Club looking at all the action. Alex, I was, <laughs> I was going to ask you about the weather first and foremost, but I can see it looks pretty grey behind you. You can always count on uh, England to have um, shocking weather on this kind of occasion. What's it like there? What's the atmosphere and, and who's there? Give us a sense. Yeah, a sunny, hot British summer is still the yeah. one thing that Saudi Arabian dollars <laughs> cannot buy, Julia, that's for sure. Um, but there is a bit of a buzz here on the opening day, certainly much more than yesterday's final practice day. Uh, I would say the crowd measures in its hundreds, not thousands so far. 
but perhaps not surprising for still a new venture that nonetheless has created a huge shockwave through global sport and geopolitics and where they collide. Um, it's probably looking a bit empty behind me now because that was the driving range full of players and they've now all been ferried off in London black cabs to 16 of the 18 holes being played here because it's a shotgun start, one of the new innovations that Live Golf say is going to shake up the established order, which means that the groups of three will be on 16 of the 18 holes. A loud horn will sound in around, well, four minutes now, and that's the signal for all the groups to start at the same time. It means they'll all go around the holes in a sort of four or five hour period, having the same conditions at the same time, removing that lottery of whether you tee off in the morning very early or in the afternoon very late, which has decided some tournaments uh, in the past. As I speak, we've got to have a flyover of planes. Oh, they look like old Spitfires to me. Um, you can probably hear them rather than see them. I'm not going to ask the camera to suddenly flick up into the sky at the last minute. So they're trying to put on a bit of a show. There's a great fans village here, lots of interaction here, a kind of Coldstream guard uh, band playing as well, trying to play on the kind of London theme, although the, most of the other tournaments will be held in the USA. There's one in Thailand, one in Saudi Arabia as well. Um, but we're waiting to see what reaction there'll be from the Live Golf Series main rival, the PGA Tour, which has not allowed its players to play here. They're playing here uh, against the permissions of the tour of which they were members. Some have resigned that membership. Of course, the PGA Tour can't take any action, Julia, until a ball is hit competitively. So that statement, there could be someone literally sitting in PGA Tour headquarters with their finger over the send button as we speak. Fascinating. So we'll wait and see uh, what the PGA do if anything, over the coming minutes and an hour, I suppose. And just what you want, that kind of flyover as you're on the putting green there or trying to tee off. That was really loud. Um, yes, Alex, great to have you. Thank you. Alex Thomas there. OK, straight ahead on first move as Russia is accused of weaponizing food. The Ukrainian deputy agriculture minister tells us it's a global problem. Plus, highly charged, the Swedish startup trying to jumpstart Europe's EV industry. All coming up. Stay with us. And welcome back to First Move. U.S. stock futures turning lower over the past hour, reflecting a more negative tone across Europe. Bond yields also moving higher, as Anna mentioned earlier. But that's a worldwide story. It comes after the European Central Bank signaled it's finally ready to raise interest rates. Policymakers are set to begin hiking borrowing costs next month and ending their quantitative easing program within weeks. That's their bond buying program, the first real steps towards taming rampant inflation. The task before global central bank is becoming all the more urgent as oil prices spike to 11-year highs. Both Brent and U.S. crude currently trading over $120 a barrel. The oil minister for the UAE warning yesterday that oil prices are nowhere near their peak. That disconcerting projection reflected in the share price of oil giants like Exxon, closing at a record high on Wednesday. Exxon trading above $100 a share for the first time in eight years. 
And it's not just the soaring cost of fuel that's jolting economies. Higher food prices are impacting family budgets globally, too, as the cost of basic staples skyrockets due in part to the war in Ukraine. Corn and wheat are up more than 60 percent this year, while soybeans and sunflower oil up more than 35 percent. Wheat prices also up more than 50 percent and the OECD warning yesterday of the risks of food shortages in emerging markets due to the Ukraine conflict. Adding to that risk, Russia has been accused of stealing hundreds of tons of Ukrainian grain and turning food into a weapon of war. This is a cold, callous and calculated siege by Putin on some of the most vulnerable countries and people in the world. And therefore... Honourable members, food has become now part of the Kremlin's arsenal of terror. United Nations Secretary General said the war threatens to, quote, unleash an unprecedented wave of hunger and destitution around the world. The UN now warns the conflict could push 47 million people into acute food insecurity. The World Food Programme has been saying that for a while now. Let's talk about this. Joining us now is Taras Vitsotsky. He's the first Deputy Minister of Agrarian Policy and Food in Ukraine. Minister, great to, Deputy Minister, great to have you with us. Um, I want to talk to you about theft to begin. Can you quantify for me how much grain you believe the Russians have stolen and, and what evidence you have for this? Uh, hello, thank you for the invitation and for the call. Unfortunately, we have uh, the situation where about half million ton of grain uh, has been stolen by Russians on the partly occupied territories of Ukraine. Uh, we do know this because we have received the uh, information from the uh, people on the elevators that uh, Russians came, just took this grain, uh, came with military power. And also we have the video and photo effects of uh, cars and rail cars bringing this grain uh, towards the direction of Russia or occupied Crimea. And even after that, we have the satellite images that the ships uh, were loaded with the grain in Crimea, where there has been no harvest of grain from the previous year left, and then moved to other countries. Uh, that's why uh, from these uh, resources we understand about these rubbers. What about strategic reserves? How much of this is your strategic reserves of grain? And are they somewhere else and protected or are they also at risk given their location? Fortunately, uh, there has been no strategic reserves left on this partly occupied territory. So uh, in overall, we have now around 22 million tons of grains on the controlled territory of Ukraine. So com comparing with the strategic reserves, these volumes are not important and not big. What about the current harvest as that's farmed? Uh, How do you protect that from theft? So, uh, first of all, uh, on the controlled area, farmers have finished uh, planting and uh, preparing to start harvesting in a month. And, of, and uh, if we talk about the partly occupied territory, at uh, these territories, uh, most of the uh, spring planting wasn't done. So, uh, first of all, we are waiting for the militaries to 
to free these territories and then move on. And on the controlled territory, of course, uh, it is protected and we will be able to keep harvesting uh, the necessary crops. I mean, this is a global issue and we've talked about this. What you were just saying there is also very important and the inability to be able to plant for next season. Deputy Minister, how, how much of a reduction are you expecting in the next harvest as a result of, of the war and the challenges of planting and the, the loss of farmers, people being able to do so? Is it going to be half? Is it going to be less than that? Can you give us any sense? Actually, uh, we have lost 25% uh, uh, of the arable area, but in terms of volumes, of course, it is small. Uh, we anticipate that the harvest will be around 35% uh, less than previous years, which, uh, which means around 30, 30 million tons less, so 35-40% less, almost half of the previous year harvest. Wow. I mean, it's incredible that you've managed to achieve what you have with, with planting this year. I want to talk about immediate priorities, and that is trying to get grain out and port access to allow grain to flow to the rest of the world. There was obviously the meeting in Ankara yesterday between the foreign ministers of, of Turkey and of Russia. And Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov said effectively that the ball is in Ukraine's court and you need to remove the mines that are in the water. Can Ukraine do that? Are you willing to do that? And how long would it take? It's untrue. So the problem is in Russia, uh, Russian military ships. So it's not the case of Ukraine. So far, they don't allow uh, and, uh, safely really to keep the civilian ships uh, move in and out of Ukrainian ports. And until the real guarantees or safety guarantees are received by Ukraine on behalf of international partners that it is possible, uh, we can't talk about uh, letting these ships in or out. So that's the main problems that Russians keep with uh, military ships near the uh, Ukrainian uh, sea border and, and don't allow safely. No one pr uh, provides the necessary guarantees, safety guarantees that the crews of these ships, the uh, goods on these ships and the ships itself could be safely bring, brought in and out of our Ukrainian ports. So far, uh, we haven't received it. And it's the same for commercial ships. No one's going to get any insurance to be able to go in there until there's guarantees of, of peace and safety. But I want to ask you again about the mines, Deputy Minister. Can you clear those mines and how long would it take? Well, so it depends again. So uh, what is the uh, goal? If uh, we receive the victory and the war is ended, of course, we can clear it uh, quite quickly. If uh, it's still uh, some corridors within the war, it's another story. So uh, to make the processes physically, it's not very complicated. First okay. of all, it depends on the uh, other obstacles, including uh, the war is going on or not. 
but you're making the point, which I think is a is an accurate one, that peace and some form of ceasefire has to be established in this region before you'll consider removing those mines to allow any ships to flow. Um, I want to ask you a final point on this, that the head of the World Food Programme told me recently that the world needs Russia's grain and it needs Russia's fertiliser. So there should be carve outs, exceptions for companies and those people that are trading with Russia in order to ensure food security around the world. Do you agree with that? I know it's a difficult question. It's an ethical Actually, question our, as much as anything uh, else. Our position is quite clear. Ukraine is ready to fulfill all the obligations in order to supply necessary food for international food security without any limits. So the point is very clear. Russia should stop the war. Uh, we, we can't have uh, other discussions. If we stop it today, all of these goods can move on tomorrow. No problem at all. They're ready. We, don't, we are not going to save them or stock them inside of the country. We are ready to support. So let's focus on finishing the war and not finding uh, uh, different uh, uh, other uh, suggestions which can't guarantee safe, safe results. Deputy Minister, thank you for your time. We appreciate it. We appreciate the information, so thank you, the Deputy Minister of Agrarian Policy and Food of Ukraine. Welcome back to First Move, and it's a muted start to the stock market trading day as the ECB gets set to raise rates for the first time in over a decade. The European Central Bank announcing that it's set for rate hike liftoff next month, playing a bit of catch up, I think, with central banks in the rest of the world who are already tightening borrowing costs. Christine Lagarde and company not signalling a hawkish half a point hike in July, as some as expected, but a more aggressive action could come later this year. The European Central Bank also cutting its growth forecast sharply and raising inflation expectations to almost 7% this year. All this as the US gets set to release its latest read on consumer price inflation in Friday's session. And a mostly lower day over in Asia too. Beijing helping set the tone after announcing that it will begin closing up bars and cafes and sports facilities yet again as new COVID cases rise. The Nikkei, however, jumped 1%. It's now down a mere 2% for the year so far. Wow, that is a global outperformer. Now, the war in Ukraine, China's COVID lockdowns, the climate crisis, not to mention the impact of disruptive technologies, all key global challenges that policymakers will be dealing with for years, if not decades. Ian Bremmer, the president and founder of the Eurasia Group, sees reason for hope as politicians, business leaders and citizens groups begin confronting emergencies head on and offering solutions. He outlines the way forward in his new book, The Power of Crisis, how three threats and our response will change the world. Ian, always great to have you on. Actually, before I even got to the book and before we talk about it, the opening page says to a glass half full, that first half was tasty. There is a more optimistic tone in this book, I think, compared to others that I've read from you. And that is important. Well, that first half is tasty is a recognition that we're the ones that actually drank the first half. Uh, and True. I think that there's a little bit of that in the book as well. You know, I think and it is and it's a great read as well. And I, I, I say that to people um, to take a look. I think 
for me, the war in Ukraine has crystallized a lot. And, and this comes out in the book, whether it's the new technologies that we're seeing in, in cyber warfare, the role of energy security, our response to that directly related to climate, of course. And then the other one in there is sort of the health crisis and the risk that we face something worse than COVID in the future. Um, is the one benefit of everything we've been through that leaders have lost some of their complacency? I think that's right. Um, and also that who we're willing to listen to as a leader has become broader. I mean, we, we all clearly owe a debt of gratitude to the Ukrainian president and the people of Ukraine for reminding us in the United States and in the West what we stand for, reminding us our values, knocking us out of that complacency. Uh, for decades, we've watched NATO adrift and increasingly obsolete, as Trump called it, or brain dead, as Macron did. And, and the Ukrainian government has forced us to start paying attention, and we're strengthening it, we're expanding it, um, and, and we're standing up for something. Uh, and, and what this, this book talks about, not just the response to the Russian invasion in Ukraine, but also all of these other crises, which is a very target-rich environment in the world these days, that, uh, that increasingly does knock us out of complacency. And some of those lessons we've been willing to start learning, like on global climate change, and some of them we haven't done such a great job. Uh, like in the response to the pandemic. But nonetheless, it's very clear that the seeds of a new and more functional global order are being planted, are being sown in these crises. The question is whether we can work well enough together to tackle some of these issues. And the book grabs you from the get-go because it talks about a conversation between Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev talking about Reagan asking him if uh, America was attacked by aliens, would Russia come and help. And the two agreed that they would work together. And Reagan, years later, was laughed about this for a number of different reasons. But the, the point there is a valid one, that if the threat is common and it's bigger than local, regional, even big political issues, it can be overcome together. That sort of so I'll give you an example. Some of these, I mean, yeah. Certainly, when I was a grad student, that conversation between the Americans and the Soviets on, and whether we could prevent each other from blowing ourselves up um, with nuclear weapons, we didn't trust each other. Reagan called the Soviets the evil empire, but we recognized we need to work with each other to contain the proliferation of these incredibly dangerous weapons. Well, in the 21st century, we have lethal autonomous drones, we have offensive cyber weapons, we have artificial intelligence um, uh, uh, algorithms that, that make it impossible to differentiate between a real person and a fake person. And the Americans and Chinese who dominate these technologies haven't even started a conversation yet about how to contain their proliferation. It's very clear that if we could do that with the Soviets, we can do that with the Chinese, but we're going to have to start now. How do you formalize it, though, Ian? You know, this goes back to a conversation you and I were having with the Microsoft president, Brad Smith, and his idea of this and concept of having a digital Geneva convention where you bring all these big players together to tackle things like cybersecurity, for example, particularly where national security interests are concerned. How do you do that in this kind of environment where you know, you've got North Korea off on one end, you've got China and the United States at odds economically, politically? How do you formalize this in order to get the action and the response that, that you're talking about? So I'm an analyst both by temperament and by training. And so what I'm going to say may sound banal, but I think it's really true. You start by defining the problem, defining the problem collectively. We've done that with climate change. The entire world now agrees 
that there is 1.2 degrees centigrade of warming. We all know it's man-made. It's not coming from nature. There's no more fake news on this issue. Doesn't mean we're all working equally hard to resolve it, but 195 countries get together every year and actually say this is the state of climate change. And so when the Americans and the Chinese, even though we don't work together on climate, the Chinese start investing in solar and nuclear and wind and electric vehicles, we look at them and we say, my God, they're going to be the, the dominant energy superpower unless we start investing. And so that competition becomes virtuous as opposed to vicious. We need to do the same thing to start on disruptive technologies, that you would need a group, could be under the UN, so like the an intergovernmental panel on artificial intelligence that would have technologists and coders and members of the private sector and bureaucrats that would define the problem. What are the technologies that are truly dangerous and disruptive, where we don't have effective defense, where we need to actually contain them from proliferating? What, what's the nature of the club that's able to have them and who are we prepared to actually put sanctions on if they don't? You start there. And then after you've collectively defined the problem, which I think can be done in the course of a couple of years, you start putting the people, the institutions on different aspects of that problem and start fighting it in the same way that on climate change, we have a group for biodiversity, we have another for methane, we have a third for deforestation, we have a fourth for carbon, we have a fifth for new technologies. This takes time, but it's it's actually a fairly clear and straightforward path in how you get there. And it doesn't require global trust of each other. It just requires an understanding of the problem. Yeah, this is such a great point as well. We can throw in social media, perhaps, and misinformation there, another huge Absolutely. thing, because that's at the core of the book as well, which is not just that two superpowers like China and the United States have to come together and work on this, but you specifically point to sort of individuals and citizens in America specifically, but we can use other examples that they have to come together as well and not be so polarized. And that's one of the most hopeful parts of the book is that it, it, these solutions don't require uh, Xi Jinping and Biden to sit in a room and hammer it out. The fact is that you have a multiplicity of actors that are capable of wielding power to respond. The Europeans end up playing a big role, for example, in response to COVID and in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, in response to climate that ends up being uh, much more interesting as part of the solution. You see this with banks, with corporations, with tech companies, with mayors and governors in the United States. When Trump pulled the US out of the Paris Climate Accord, it didn't really matter to the long-term trajectory of the United States in reducing carbon because so many other actors were committed to it. So, I mean, for those that look at Washington and say, my God, it's just so dysfunctional in the beltway right now, my response is, I agree, and we're probably not gonna fix that in the next five to 10 years, but we can work around it. Yeah, society has to get on with it anyway. Um, I wish we could apply some of your optimisms to my previous discussion, which is trying to find a way to get grain and address the food crisis that's going on around the world from Ukraine. Um, where, do, where do you think things stand where um, the war is I, concerned I, and Russia's position? You know, I, it, it didn't feature in a big way in my book in the same way that uh, the gun crisis in the U.S. didn't feature in the same way in my book because you know, climate change we didn't do much on climate change until it started affecting us, until it was about Florida and California and Italy. I mean, every citizen in the world seeing that it's a, a crisis for them in their backyards. The food crisis is kind of where the climate crisis was 20, 30 years ago. 
it's largely going to be a crisis for the poorest and most disenfranchised around the world. And so there's a lot of great words, a lot of performative political response, but not a lot of money behind it. And that's kind of the way we've been responding to the gun crisis in the United States or the crack cocaine crisis in the 80s and 90s. A whole bunch of headlines, not a lot of there there in terms of, you know, it's not enough of a kick in the ass to force, you know, people with power to actually change their application of resources to start making decisions different, where a number of the global crises that I write about in the book are actually big enough to force us to act. Ian, I didn't intend to go here, but you did, so I'm going to go there. Do you think anything changes in, in the United States over some form of gun control? Clearly, it's a top debate right now in Congress, but the, the fear is that we go no further once again. Um, I think it is more possible today that you have some form of incremental improvement in regulation, you know, assault weapons uh, not being available to people under 21 as opposed to 18, maybe some more red flag laws. But these are these are tiny incremental changes that react. If you ask me, do I believe that the are the Americans prepared to come together politically and legislate a response to gun control that would bring the United States in line with every other advanced industrial economy in the world? The answer to that is a very clear no. No. Um, unfortunately and heartbreakingly, that's a perfect illustration, I think, of the conversation that we were just having. Um, yes. How many times did you have to edit this book, by the way, given the timing and what's in it and what's going on? It wasn't that. Um, I mean, I started the book when the pandemic already hit, so I sort of knew the contours. The issue was that the book had to go to bed on February 26th. So on the 24th, when the invasion of Ukraine started, I had to talk to my office and say, literally every meeting that can be taken off my calendar for the next 48 hours, um, I'm just going to be working on writing this. And that's that's what I did. And thank God. I mean, look, it could have been the February 23rd. It could have been worse. <laughs> Always great to chat to you. It's a great read. Thank you, Ian Bremer, thank you. the president and founder of Eurasia Group. OK. Coming up, how Europe's homegrown EV battery maker is gearing up to challenge big Asian players. That's next. Welcome back to First Move and to a supercharged global battery battle. I can't believe I said that right. Swedish battery maker Northvolt has recently become the first European company to ship EV batteries. It's secured more than $50 billion worth of contracts from big automakers, including BMW, Volkswagen and Volvo. Northvolt says its mission is to not just build better batteries, but greener batteries too. Let's discuss. Joining us now, the CEO of Northvolt, Peter Carlson. He's also Tesla's former vice president of supply chain. Peter, great to have you on the show. Explain what this moment means and what it means too for Europe's electric vehicle ambitions. Well, it's um, uh, great, great to be with you. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it's a big moment for us, of course. We've been, you know, we were going live uh, uh, five years ago and, uh, and have been uh, building uh, this, this factory uh, that is now shipping towards uh, uh, the big electric uh, aviation makers uh, in, from northern Sweden, uh, and it's been it's been uh, it's been a tough project uh, to to run, you know, to build a gigafactory during uh, during COVID, during uh, the global semiconductor crisis, during logistics, and and but now we are here and we're starting it up and we're starting shipments. It's in small uh, scale yet, but we're scaling up uh, big and 
uh, we're really, really great to, to be here where we are. Some images now, and I think with your Tesla experience, but also from what we discuss on a regular basis with the challenges of building, never mind in a pandemic, Peter, it's a cash burn business. Do you have enough money, given the promises of, of contracts that we mentioned in the introduction? Are you in a position now where you can ramp up? Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, we've had uh, uh, very, very strong backing by both financial investors like like Goldman Sachs, pension funds, uh, uh, etc., and uh, but also industrial players like like Volkswagen. So uh, we are uh, well positioned with uh, uh, with good liquidity, and and we can for sure ramp up this uh, uh, as we plan. About battery manufacturing, though, for you, this is also about not swapping one vulnerability, which is our reliance on fossil fuels for another, which you can argue would be demand for the minerals and the metals that go into these batteries. So a huge part of the premise, I think, of your business, too, is this promise to have, I believe, at least 50 percent of the materials recycled by by 2030. It's this circular story of battery creation in EVs, which is the only way that we're going to allow all the automakers that are making promises of EVs achieve that over the coming years. Yeah, I mean, um, for, for sure, uh, you know, the, the demands on, on critical raw materials such as nickel, lithium, uh, cobalt, etc. is, is, is going to be uh, growing enormously. And, and uh, part of, of uh, building really a sustainable business is to make uh, uh, recycling. And, uh, and, and here we're using a, a hydrometallurgical uh, process to, to separate uh, um, old batteries um, and and really being able to uh, to make uh, new batteries out of uh, out of the uh, the old uh, materials and and this is is a very very important part of our circular uh, strategy and we will uh, be coming online with uh, what we think is the largest uh, um, uh, recycling refinery uh, in uh, Europe here during uh, mid next year in conjunction with with uh, the the current factory. I'm very excited about that. What's that going to mean for cost? Because it's such a huge chunk of the cost of the vehicle now. If we can incorporate recycling as we push forward, what's it going to mean in terms of the cost of the battery along with new technology? Well, you know, uh, for sure, uh, there's going to be a startup phase uh, where uh, the recycling logistics flows and processes uh, needs to be uh, optimised. So, so there is going to be a startup uh, phase where, where uh, recycling uh, is going to be a little bit more expensive. But, but very, very soon, I think at scale, uh, there, will be, um, there will be a significant benefit of, of recycling uh, battery materials. And, and that, that should be, of course, shared by all players and the similar way that you see in the aluminum industry and, and, uh, and uh, others. I want to ask you about hiring as well, because clearly this is a huge growth industry and it's an exciting industry and um, it's technologically advanced too. Peter, do you have any trouble hiring? And I just wanted to get your sense, particularly from having been a former uh, Tesla employee of Elon Musk's suggestion that everyone has to be back at work. There is no working from home. How is that going to uh, impact your recruitment drive if you tried to do the same for North Vault? And would you? Well, um so overall in in recruitment we were we were able last year to recruit uh, roughly 1800 people but we had over 100,000 applicants to, uh, wow. to the company and i think yeah <laughs> and and i think it's it's uh, driven out of uh two things uh one is is you know 
we have a very, very clear purpose uh, uh, to develop and, and do a major impact and build the world's greenest batteries. And secondly, we're also been offering uh, pretty much every employee to uh, to also become shareholder in <clears throat> in the company. And I think the combination of this have made uh, a large interest to join the company. But there is there is a scarce of of, uh, of competence uh, in uh, this this industry. It's growing incredibly uh, fast. Yeah. So it's going to be continue being a war on talent here for for quite some time. <laughs> yes or no? Can they work from home? Uh, they can work, yeah, for, for, oh, uh, for okay. From, they can work from, from home, but you know, <laughs> but but we'd like to see them in the office. But. <laughs> but you're not making a firm line. Just checking. Just if there's a bit of competition there. Peter, come back and talk to us soon. I have loads more questions, but as always, I've taken too much time. Great to chat to you, sir. Thank you, Peter Carlson, CEO of Northvolt. All right, coming up, butting heads over bots. A data deluge reports that Twitter will give Elon Musk all the data he could ever want and a whole lot he didn't. Find out why next. Welcome back to First Move. Elon Musk's data deadlock with Twitter may soon be over. The platform is planning to comply with Musk's demands for more data to help him assess the number of fake accounts or bots that's according to the Washington Post. Paula Monica is with us now. Paul, I'm going to be a five-year-old on a long journey and say, are we there yet? <laughs> I mean, we, we, can, we can talk about this data and too much data and whatever it happens and how you define what a bot is, quite frankly. Is this an excuse or is the deal going to get done? I still honestly don't know, to tell you the truth. I think that you are correct to point out that this might be yet another potential reason for Musk to try and walk away, even though that would open up the possibility of litigation. I think Twitter really wants to hold Elon Musk's feet to the fire. He says he wants to buy them for $54.20 a share, and Twitter really needs that to happen because at last check, Twitter stock is around 40 I think it makes sense that Musk is uh, you know, growing a little bit more reluctant the more that he looks at Twitter. But it all, again, begs the question, why did he impulsively decide to do this deal without any real due diligence in the first place? This due diligence after the fact seems a little curious at best. But I do think that there are legitimate questions, Julia, about how much spam and fake accounts bots are on the platform. Twitter says that, you know, they let advertisers can see some of this data if they pay for it. And they claim it's only less than 5%. But there's a lot of skepticism. Some people think that it's 10 to 15% perhaps. Yeah. And in his defense, you can't get access to that kind of data on the due diligence before you make an offer. So there has to be some information sharing, but it does feel sort of very hostile. So I I think the right questions are being asked. I just wonder whether perhaps it's a way to negotiate a lower price or to your point, um, perhaps not doing the deal at all. Um, Yes. Early enthusiasm, perhaps later a bit of regret. (laughs) Yeah. Follow Monica. Thank you. Okay, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. 
Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.